Where do you live? Hopewell, New Jersey. Oh, I grew up in New Jersey. What part? Uh, Northern, like Montclair. Yeah. Yeah. Jersey proud. My daughter's stuffed animals are named Tony, Carmela, Meadow, Polly, <laughs> Silvio. <laughs> Every time there's a new stuffed animal, we're like, Christopher? That's right. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> uh. You've probably heard of Matthew Desmond's ideas, even if you haven't heard his name. He's an author, MacArthur Fellow, and a professor of sociology at Princeton University. And his book, Evicted, won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize and changed how Americans think about housing. Desmond is a preeminent expert on poverty, a topic he says affects all Americans regardless of their income level. As he mentions often in our conversation, America is not strapped for cash. Yet more than 38 million people in America can't afford basic necessities like food, housing, and medicine. On top of that, there are millions of Americans who earn too much annual income to qualify for government assistance, but not nearly enough to get by, especially as the cost of living continues to rise. In his latest book, Poverty by America, Desmond looks at the ways in which Americans privately struggle with the hidden yet omnipresent reality of poverty. His latest research aims to make this struggle more visible and reveals poverty as a systemic problem in need of a systemic solution. And since this past Tuesday, October 17th, was the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, we wanted to share a conversation that offers some solutions to do just that. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. Thank you so much for being here. So I want to start off by mentioning most people know you for your book, Evicted. I want to go back a little bit. When did you consciously begin paying attention to poverty? Probably when I was a kid. You know, I grew up poor in a little town in Arizona, a railroad town, and uh, family didn't have a lot of money. Our gas got shut off regularly. And then when I went to college on like every student loan and scholarship I could find, we lost our childhood home to foreclosure. And I think experiencing that with my family, moving into a little rental apartment, was another kind of reminder of how poverty stressed and pulled us, uh, diminished us in a way. So I, I think I started paying attention to poverty when I was younger, but also paying attention to inequality. You know, when I went to college, I went to Arizona State University. It's my state university. And I mean, I saw just a kind of wealth and opulence that I had never seen before in my little mm. hometown. And I think that also was confusing to me and was another personal, you know, point of reflection for me that drove this question about why. Because poverty in America is unique. There's a lot of poverty alongside a lot of riches. And this is one of the defining characteristics of our country. And I think experiencing that as a kid and then as a young adult was something that drove me on this path. So can you tell me more about your childhood and young adulthood thinking about this. What was your family like when you were growing up? Can you tell me about the home that your family lost? So my dad was a pastor and I grew up in the church. And I mean in the church, like someone's got to fold those bulletins. And so, you know, we went to church multiple times a week. 
religion was like the air we breathe Mm -hmm. growing up. So everything was understood through that prism. If something good happened, it was because God wanted it to. If something bad happened, it was the same reason. And so inequality and poverty were taught through the Bible to us, like everything else was. And I think that I picked up and connected to parts of that teaching where you saw a very angry God, Mm. you know, a God angry at injustice. Mm. You saw like the God of Isaiah 61, like I, the Lord, hate robbery. You know, you see Jesus going into the temple and chasing out the money changers, not asking them politely to leave. I think those stories also kind of worked its way subconsciously in the way I, I write. Our home, it was a little tiny uh, ranch home, wood paneling on the inside. It had a fireplace. We lived in Northern Arizona, the cold part of Arizona. It was on this two acre lot full of weeds and dust, but also like Russian uh, olive trees. And we had chickens and goats sometimes. And so it was a little country home. Mm -hmm. It cost $60,000 when my parents bought it. And so what was it like when they lost it? Well, it was uh, devastating for the family. It um, was part of a long unwinding, you know, where my parents declared bankruptcy. And it was the capstone of a series of painful events. And, you know, experiencing that as a young man, my story was personal. It was dad's fault. It was mom's fault. It was something that stayed within the family. And I think that my job as a sociologist is to make personal problems political problems. To take something that can feel very personal and be encased in shame and say, look, you know, you're not the only one dealing with this and this isn't all on you. And I think that that kind of is a very liberating mission for the job I have now. So this is a perfect place to pivot because I'm curious if you can tell me how you began looking at this as a field of research and how you realized you wanted to look into this as your career. I've always kind of had a a hatred of poverty, I think, in that I've always felt it was an abomination. And I think that I was pretty lost in college. I thought I might want to be a lawyer. And so I went down that path a little bit, but then I, I just kept coming back to these questions about poverty and homelessness and inequality. I started spending a lot of time with homeless people around my university not serving them or passing out socks, just like literally hanging out, talking, listening, befriending them. So I think that I also had this kind of reporter or even ethnographic impulse around these issues, like Mm. going to the street to kind of understand these larger problems. And then I just figured going into grad school and going into sociology was a decent way to pursue these more and to really kind of hunt them down. And sociology and social science more broadly has a flourishing tradition of trying to understand the nature of dynamics and consequences of poverty and racism in America. And I feel like I'm writing in and to that tradition with my work. So I want to ask about sort of the differences between some of the poverty that you've studied in your career and your experience with your own family. I mean, would you consider yourself to have grown up in poverty? I think officially, yes. Um, but I also want to be wary of that category, especially given the kind of poverty that I wrote about in my last book, Evicted. Mm -hmm. We never went hungry. You know, I met kids that went hungry. We never experienced things like a cockroach infestation or other things that really define 
deep poverty in America today. I went to the dentist, mm-hmm. you know, growing up as a kid. There are a lot of poor kids that, that don't go to the dentist. And if they get a cavity or tooth rot, they just deal with it, you know? And so I kind of say, I grew up tight. Money was tight. Mm-hmm. We experienced some of the humiliations and slights of poverty. I don't ever want anyone to have the impression that I experienced anything like the families that I wrote about in my last book. They are experiencing this hard bottom layer mm-hmm. of American poverty that I never did. Yeah. So you write that in 2022, the poverty line was drawn at $13,590 for a single person and $27,750 for a family of four. Yeah. So what data determines that? And is that an artificially low line? I mean, can you really live on that amount of money in the United States of America? No, you can't. And, you know, it started back in the 60s, you know, the official poverty line. Johnson launched the war on poverty. And then his administration was like, well, how do we know if we won the war or not? You know, we got to have a poverty line. And so a Social Security Administrator named Molly Warshansky came up with this idea. It was pretty simple and elegant. It was like, okay, if poverty is not affording basic necessities and nothing is more basic than food, then what if we said everyone who is spending at least, you know, more than a third of their income on food, they're going to be considered poor. And that was the poverty line. And that's still our poverty line adjusted for inflation. Now, that's a limited measure for a lot of different reasons, Mm -hmm. right? But one of the reasons is it doesn't account for regional variation in cost of living. So $27,000 in rural Florida is the same as $27,000 in Manhattan. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It also doesn't account for certain kinds of government aid. You know, so if a family gets uh, housing assistance or food stamps and their lives are improved by those programs, the poverty line ignores those things. Mm -hmm. And so in 2011 government launched a new poverty line. It's called the Supplemental Poverty Measure. And when we did, we actually gained 3 million more poor people officially because any reductions in poverty by counting things like food stamps and housing assistance were more than offset by counting for rising housing and medical costs. So there's a lot of ways to measure poverty in America. There's no agreement between social scientists about which is the best measure. Mm-hmm. It's actually really hard. And we should approach this question with a lot of humility. But Almost everyone agrees with your intuition, Charlotte, that these lines are much too low. And we have to have a more realistic measure of poverty. That could be something like something called a relative measure, which just says, okay, what if we said everyone below a third of the median household income is poor? And that would allow kind of for a broader tint and it would allow for poverty to adjust for living standards. That's how they do it in Canada and England, for example. Or we could just measure hardship straight up. Like if poverty is experiencing all this hardship, let's just measure hardship. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, man, there's some scary signs going on in America right now. You know, over the last 20 years, evictions are up 22%. Wow. Number of homeless school kids is up 74% since the Great Recession. Why is that? 74% since the Great Recession. Why? It's the housing crisis. Yeah. But look, there's plenty of poverty above the poverty line too, Mm -hmm. right? As a lived experience, one in three of us live in homes making $55,000 or less. Now, many of those families are considered quote-unquote poor, but what else do you call trying to raise two kids in Portland or Miami or Chicago on fifty, dollars $60,000 a year? And so I think that as a developed rich nation, America stands in a disgraced class of its own hmm. for being the richest democracy with the worst poverty. But look, poverty isn't just an income level, right? That's just the start. Poverty is like 
telling your kids they can't have seconds on top of dealing with the backache you got from working these hard jobs, on top of not being able to go to the doctor, on top of getting roughed up by the police, on top of the nauseating fear of eviction and homelessness and often depression, sometimes incarceration, on and on it goes. So I think that poverty isn't just the experience of having not enough money. It's this exhausting piling on of problems. And I think that should motivate us, give us a sense of moral urgency, because it means that scores of Americans are living without dignity and safety in this land of dollars. Coming up, Matthew Desmond explains the puzzle of poverty after this. So help me understand what is different about poverty now than it has been at other points in American history. I mean, one could argue that there's nothing new about there being a ton of poverty in the United States and also in the world. Why focus on this right now? I think that one way to think about this is it's a puzzle, actually. Hmm. If you look at The War on Poverty and the Great Society, which were launched in 1964, these were deep investments in the poorest families in America. You know, these were things like inventing Head Start, making food aid permanent, expanding Social Security. Ten years after those programs rolled out, poverty was cut in half. Hmm. But they weren't fighting poverty alone. The job market was delivering. One in three workers belonged to a union. Wages were going up every year. If you had a job, you had some benefits. You could advance within the company. But as workers lost power, our jobs got a lot worse. You know, one sociologist put it like this. Our grandparents had careers and our parents have jobs and we complete tasks. And so in a way, we haven't addressed the unrelenting exploitation of the poor in the labor market and in the housing market. And because of that, our spending on poverty which again is essential and works, isn't going far enough. It's like government programs, when the job market was doing its job for American workers, they were like cures. They helped cure poverty. But our job market and our housing market now has kind of turned those programs into something like dialysis. Huh. You know, They make it less painful, but they don't make poverty disappear. I think also just another reason, like why this, why now? <sighs> Like all this poverty in our midst, it it diminishes us all. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter if we come from poverty or abundance, we are connected to this. We feel this kind of corrupting who we are as a nation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that many of us want to put an end to it and just don't know how exactly yet. Um, the old stories about poverty, they're dying. We're done with them. We are tired of those stories. And I think that this book is helping us, it's contributing, I should say, to helping us kind of build a new story about who we are with respect to this question. So I want to drill down into this question of exploitation. That is often such an overused word. What specifically do you mean when you say that the poor in America are exploited by the rich? 
That's so interesting that you think it's overused. I want to read what you're reading because <laughs> when I when I read, you know, studies and stories about why there's so much poverty in America, they often don't address exploitation at all. Hmm. You know, it's like there's 38 million of us below the poverty line and like no one's benefiting from it. You know, it's a sad accident. So who is benefiting? We are. Huh. We are. Big we too. Big tent we. I don't just mean we, the guy that's like a little richer than you. Yeah. You know, I often mean us, you, me, a lot of folks probably listening to this. Right. I ran across this line by Tommy Orns, the novelist, Mm -hmm. and he writes, it's like these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that, I was like, that's the poverty Hmm. debate. We should have been focusing on the fire. Hmm. You know, who lit it, who's warming their hands by it. And often that that we, that's us. So a lot of us consume the cheap goods and services the working poor produce. A lot of us talk about shareholder capitalism as if shareholders were like 12 guys in dark suits <laughs> in Manhattan. But like a lot of us mm-hmm. are shareholders. We're directly or indirectly invested in the stock market. Don't we benefit when our returns go up, even when those returns come at someone's cost? Hmm. And so can you tell me how we are benefiting specifically, not abstractly, from other people's poverty? Sure. Let's look at financial exploitation. Every year, over $11 billion in overdraft fees, $1.6 billion in check cashing fees, about $10 billion in payday loan fees are charged to poor families. That's 61 million dollars pulled out of the pockets of the poor every single day. So who benefits from that? So like payday loan companies and banks do, but many of us who have free checking accounts also benefit from that because it turns out our accounts aren't free. They're subsidized by overdraft fees that are charged to only 9% of bank clients who are the poor made to pay for their poverty. Or if you look at housing exploitation, Who's benefiting from incredibly high rents in poor neighborhoods? Well, some landlords are benefiting, sure, but some homeowners often are too. You know, our property values propped up by our collective effort to make housing scarce and expensive. So I think many times when we kind of scratch below the surface, we learn that our lives are not just different from the poor, but we're connected. We're connected in an intimate way. We're part of a shared community. Hmm. The American welfare state is unbalanced. You know, we give the most to families that need it the least, especially in the form of tax breaks. This is like a long-standing tradition. Hmm. And many of us benefit from that imbalance. And then we have the audacity to ask, how can we afford doing more to fight poverty? As if the answer wasn't staring us right in the face. We could afford it. Right. If the richest among us took less from the government. So took fewer tax breaks, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would settle for just tax fairness, actually, to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. I mean, a study published a few years ago showed that if the top 1% of Americans just paid the taxes they owed, not paid more taxes, just like stopped avoiding taxes so successfully, that we as a nation could raise an additional $175 billion a year. Wow. Which is almost enough to pull everyone below the official poverty line above it. Yeah. You know, we have the resources. Outside of the lack of 
government support for these solutions. Who do you think is to blame for this current state of affairs? Is it lobbyists? Is it the banking industry? Is it the housing industry? Who's the villain here? Is it all of us? I think those of us who have amassed the most political and corporate power do bear an extra dose of responsibility for the current state of affairs. I think that is true and deliciously absolving. Hmm. And this book is making an effort to get all of us to audit our lives and to kind of realize how we are connected to the problem and therefore connected to the solution. And so many of us wittingly and unwittingly are contributing to poverty in America. Some lives are made small so that others may grow. And so I think that, you know, it's become fashionable to blame someone else, right? Blame that one senator who didn't vote that one way. Blame the poor themselves. Blame immigrants. You know, pick your blame. I would like us to start telling a different story. I would like us to start looking in our own lives and taking some personal responsibility for poverty in our communities and our nation. So what do you think that looks like if you're somebody who, say, is not a landlord, is not a mortgage broker, is not somebody who necessarily has their hand on the levers of some of these problems? How can an ordinary person in their everyday lives help address this problem? So we could just leverage whatever power we have wherever we are. So I teach at a university. Mm -hmm. So I've got a little power in my university, right? So I can start asking, what are our landscapers paid? Are we doing right by first-generation college students? You know, I can start asking these questions where I am. And wherever we are, if we have a little bit of leverage in our faith community, on our school board, in our neighborhoods, I think we can start exerting that influence on behalf of abolishing poverty. We could shop and invest differently. Mm -hmm. We know where our cucumbers came from, but we don't know what the farm worker got made picking them. And with that coffee, we don't know what the baristas paid or if there's a union. So I think thinking a little bit more carefully about where our money goes is a way to build political will to put upward pressure on policymakers and corporate elites. We can turn away from segregation. Mm -hmm. You know, the country continues to be segregationist. And we build walls around ourselves. These walls are made up of laws. And, you know, the segregationists, they do a good job of defending that wall. They go to the zoning board meetings on 8 o'clock at night. They yell at the aldermen. They come up with the process. They make it illegal to build any affordable housing in so many communities around the country. And those of us that are seeking a broader, more inclusive America, we need to go to those zoning board meetings too. And we got to stand up and say, look, I refuse to deny other kids opportunities my kids get living here. Our values just can't stop where our property line begins. You can join the anti-poverty movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't really think of myself as like a movement person, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, like a sign-carrying person. Yeah. But movements need a lot of us. They need writers and accountants and nurses and lawyers. And so I think whatever our talents are and our gifts, we can apply those to abolishing poverty in this land. Okay, so... I feel like I keep referring to this problem as intractable or thinking of it as intractable. And I think that's partly because of the research that you've done that shows that all of these things haven't worked and all of this spending hasn't worked and that it's persisted across Republican and Democratic 
administrations and that it's been at this constant level regardless of the interventions that have been attempted. So that's kind of where that thought comes from a little bit. I'm sure I'm not the only person who thinks that. So help me understand why that's the wrong way to think about it and how harmful that mindset is to actually, you know, doing what we have to do to solve this problem, which, as you've just laid out, is possible and within our power. You know, a lot of us kind of talk about Congress as so polarized and so impossible. And that is nothing new, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, like the 60s had a polarized Congress. The 60s had senators sleeping in their offices and filibustering and making sure government inaction wasn't just the outcome, but the goal. And in the 60s, we got major pieces of civil rights legislation passed in the Great Society and the War on Poverty. And if so much was accomplished, despite those odds, it was because the labor movement and the civil rights movement put unrelenting pressure on Congress. So we've been here before, you know? And I'm just so glad that those folks and those movements weren't hopeless Mm -hmm. and pushed through that. You know, the good news is that programs we have work. They work pretty darn well. The good news is that we are not strapped for cash in America. You know, we are the richest country on earth with respect to the size of our economy. And so I think that that's not the hard part. You know, the hard part is binding ourselves together and demanding this of our country. Is there a piece of data that you wish existed that doesn't exist, that you think would help people understand this or would help people understand the scale of this problem? Or is there a way of measuring this problem that we're not using that we should? The uh, Yale Law Professor Harold Coe has said, when we don't measure what's important, we make important what we can measure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have measured the poor. You know, we have designed multi-million dollar data sets, asking the poor everything about their lives. So if you asked me what explains eviction, I could draw on those data sets and I could be like, well, you know, race matters, gender matters, the uh, chance of you getting evicted increases with children. That's all true. But like people aren't evicting themselves, right? Someone's right. doing it. And so I want more data on the fire. So I would like data that's like, who owns our cities? Who's doing all the evictions? What are the average return rates for landlords in poor neighborhoods? I'd like data like that. I'd like data on money going in for union busting. You know, how much money do corporations spend on making sure organizing is really hard in their shops? I'd like more data on the fire. That's, that's mm-hmm. what I'd love. What's standing in the way of getting some of this data you describe about, for example, landlord data or data about money going into union busting efforts. Why don't we have that data? Well, many times because we've made it purposefully hard to get those data, right? So if you look at ownership records in housing, for example, you might think it's probably easy to figure out who owns like Baltimore, but it's not. You know, there's many companies that have hid themselves under LLCs or other shell names. So asking a basic question, like who are the 10 top evictors in Baltimore is actually really hard because we've allowed folks 
to kind of shield and hide themselves. And so this is another place of like massive inequality. Like if you get evicted, your real name appears on the eviction record. That eviction record can follow you all of your days. That can affect your credit, your housing opportunities going forward. It can be the reason you're denied housing assistance. But if you do that eviction, you could do it under kind of an LLC or a shell company name and no one can know it's you. And so I think that we often talk about transparency and accountability. But again, the poor are basically, you know, the ones that are under the spotlight for that and the rich often aren't. And so this is, again, a way we could think about asking different questions about poverty. So what are the questions we should be asking about poverty? I've never been asked that. I think we have to start asking why do so many of us accept and tolerate all this poverty in our midst? Why do we think that we have to live with so much poverty? It is a myth that poverty is um, a natural or a necessary outgrowth of post-industrial capitalism. Why do so many of us accept this as normal? I think that's a question worth asking. And I think questions about how to build and maintain political will to fight poverty are really important as well. So I think if you think of a new kind of question in the job market, you know, the question wouldn't be, you know, how can we make sure these guys get the right skills or education to succeed in the job market? The question is, why are so many jobs paying poverty wages when they don't have to, you know? I think with respect to housing, I would like to know why rents have doubled over the past 20 years. I, who have spent the last 10 years studying this problem, don't think we have an answer to that question. Well, that's a perfect segue into some questions we can get answers to because it's time for our final round of fun, lighter questions, the last segment of our show called The Last Time. So when was the last time you had writer's block? That's a tough question for me because, you know, some days you do and and then the next day the dam breaks. And I feel like writing is a very schizophrenic process where some days like 3,000 words flow out of you and some days like a paragraph is like an eight-hour struggle. And some days you love what you did and some days you think it's the stupidest thing in the world. I never really have gotten like a long stretch of writer's block, but I certainly have experienced on a day-to-day basis. I just feel like that's what writing is. Uh, Okay, when was the last time you were shocked by something in the news? You know, we had this historic investment in the American people during COVID. We had the child tax credit that cut child poverty almost in half in less than a year. We had emergency rental assistance that drove evictions to lowest that they've ever been on record. And what was shocking to me is that we let that all go. You know, we let the child tax credit expire. We let emergency rental assistance expire. I think that was disquieting and shocking to me that more of us didn't clear our throats and demand a new normal. Hmm. When was the last time you read a great book? I recently reread Minjin Lee's Benchinko, which is a marvelous book. I love that book. Kind of like how the heck does she do it? Kind of masterful book. And one of the things that I 
respect so much in writers is just control. And I think that she puts that on such beautiful display in that book. When's the last time you ate a really good home-cooked meal? So my mom is from Georgia, and we often get together with them, and she'll cook, you know, mashed potatoes and fried chicken, and chicken and dumplings is one of my favorites. I think that that springs to mind for me, just my mom's cooking. She is such a whiz, you know, in the kitchen. Okay, finally, when is the last time you went to the movies, and what did you see? I saw... With my nine-year-old Guardians of the Galaxy 3, we sat in the front row. And did you get popcorn? We didn't get popcorn because we went out to eat right before and we were both full. Um, But for the record, I make the best popcorn in our family. And so I have a hard time with movie theater popcorn because I think it's orders of magnitude worse than what I could cook up in the air pop at home. So what is your popcorn secret? What's so oh, great about your popcorn? You think you're going to get that out of our first interview? You got to have me back <laughs> a few times if you want the popcorn secret. <laughs> okay, I guess we'll have to have you back, Matthew. Matthew Desmond, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Charlotte. Really a pleasure. For more information about the kind of work Matthew Desmond wants all of us to do, you can visit endpovertyusa.org. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Wicked. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Trigger 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Trigger 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>